0: Good morning everyone morning. and welcome to our Bible study hour. I've been asked to study the Word of God with you on the subject of faith. Actually, <laughs> we've had some uh, Not confusion, but ambiguity as to what we should talk about. Should we talk about reconciliation with God, which is a subject very close to me? Not just reconciliation with God, but reconciliation among human beings. The world is so divided and so broken. The message, one of the most crucial messages of Scripture for our time, is the message of brotherhood and solidarity with all human beings of every nation, kindred, town and people. However, a foundation for such a discourse, it might come sometime in the future, is faith. So we've decided that we are going to study with you this morning the subject of faith, and I've entitled the lesson, The Good Fight of Faith in a Crisis of Trust. The good fight of faith in a crisis of trust. Let's just pause and invite God's presence to be with us as we open the Bible. Gracious God, author of truth, inspirer of scripture. God whom we have not seen, but who we know is with us in Jesus Christ. We invite you to be with us in a very special way as we open your word, that that same spirit who is the author of this truth, this book, will guide us into all truth today. Give us receptive minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I should say at the outset that the word faith, which has been tossed around and played with for generations. This word faith has two English siblings and these siblings are known as trust and believe or belief. Trust and belief. These words are often used interchangeably in the Bible with faith depending on the context in which it is it occurs. They are translated from the same root in the original language. We will not elaborate on the fine distinctions that may exist between them. Suffice it to say that we cannot talk about biblical faith without using, or at least bearing in mind, these two siblings, belief and trust. I begin by asking the question. And um, unfortunately, we will not have a lot of time for interaction. I'm a teacher, and I like to interact with students, but uh, the demands of time may not allow us to have a great deal of interaction. I can't see you very well there. The lights are blazing at me, but I am sure you are there. So every once in a while, don't, don't, don't hesitate to let me know that you are there and in tune. So I ask the question, if you believe doctors are frauds, would you go to them? Would you follow their instructions and take the medicine they prescribe if you have no basis whatever for trusting them? I know what your answer would be. Using the same line of reasoning, do you think it would do any ultimate good for you, for God, or for the universe, if God would go ahead and save everyone, including rebels who do not trust him? Would that be a good thing for God, for you, or for the whole universe? How long would there be peace in the valley if you were to do that? It is obviously very important to be able to trust and obey trust other human beings if we are to enjoy living together with them in the same neighbourhood or the same community. We may live in neighborhoods, but we don't enjoy it. We hate it. We don't communicate, and that's not a good way to live. But if we want to enjoy living in the same neighborhood with other human beings, in the same community, there must be mutual trust and faith. How important it must be then... To discover who God is and decide whether we can put our faith in him. This subject then is of utmost importance because to be truly and fully human, we must be connected with the divine. To be truly and fully human, we must be connected with the divine, disconnected from our source. Humanity begins to degenerate and crumble. And much of what we see in the world is a distorted humanity. And faith is the only means by which we can be so connected with God, with the divine. Faith is the only mechanism there is by which we can be connected with God. Therefore, faith is central in a free universe faith is the hand that turns the key in god's in god's house to the door into god's house in a free universe the creator desires only those who choose to have faith in him and trust one another to constitute his kingdom and faith is the only condition for entrance into and enjoyment of God's special family. Notice how the following scripture states how crucial and decisive faith is. If you have your Bible, you might want to refer to Hebrews 11.6. I think most of us might know that scripture. And without faith, it is impossible to please him To please God. Without faith, it is what? Impossible Impossible to please God. So if you want a relationship with God, if you want to be connected with God, it is imperative that we discover what faith is and that we know it, experience it, and are capable of exercising faith. Hebrews 10 38 also tells us that the just shall live by faith. If we are talking about righteousness, just being righteous in the presence of God, the only means by which we can be made righteous is by faith. Not by anything, not by pedigree, not by our genetic constitution, not by our wealth, not by our privilege, not by our religion. The just shall live by faith. Martin Luther discovered that after years of personal spiritual struggle. And the text goes on to say, and if anyone shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. That is to say, it is possible to shrink back from faith, from exercising faith. Right? The just shall live by faith, but if anyone shrinks back, God says my soul shall have no pleasure in him. So it is possible to shrink back. I see Dr. Tauron in front there. Greetings to you and Mrs. Tauron. These are friends of mine. All right? So already we can begin to see that while faith is so essential, one has a choice. One can choose to shrink away from faith. And there are many people when confronted with the the choice, shrink back. You see. But faith is the only means to get connected with God, to obtain righteousness, to be justified. And in the absence of faith, we use all kinds of human, humanistic mechanisms to find justification. And we have all kinds of substitute gods that we adore. Faith. Is the only way. Last week, my wife invited me to go up to Lake Arrowhead, where her colleagues at Loma Linda University were having a conference. I'd been there some years before, but I drove the road. I discovered it was very winding, very steep, and very busy. And I wish there was another way, a highway, to go to Arrowhead but alas that was the only way at least the only one that i knew and so i had to go through that steep winding treacherous road we got there safely no accidents i am happy to say but the next morning i was coming down alone she had to stay and it was foggy so it was not only steep winding treacherous but it was foggy dense fog and sooner as i got out on the highway there was an accident. Because of the fog, I believe. But I, I missed the way because of the fog for a while. I backed out. I came back on the road. I eventually came to San Bernardino, to Loma Linda back. I'm grateful. I wish there were another way, but I had to struggle through that one winding road in order to get home. That's the way is faith. There is no other choice but to choose faith if we want to be connected with God. And yet, important, as faith is, it is not something that you, that, 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 uh, that is uh, easy, in a sense. Scripture refers to it as involving a fight. I want you to know that. Scripture refers to faith as involving a fight. 1 Timothy 6.12 fight the good fight of faith. You think it will come natural and that it will be easy. In a sense it should be natural but it's a fight. But I'm glad that he uses the qualifying word good. It's a good fight. There are some fights that are very, very bad but it's a good fight of faith. It is a fight because there are powerful forces on this planet that are determined to obliterate this quality of fate from the earth. Can I say that again? It is a fight, not because fate itself is inherently so problematic. It is a fight because there are powerful forces, brilliant forces in this planet that are determined to obliterate this quality of fate from the earth. There is a crisis of trust right now in our world, and you know it. We are living at a time when humankind is caught up in one way or another in great conflicts, wars. Over 100,000 of our youth are engaged in two major wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. In the streets of Baghdad and other cities, the insurgents are fighting back fiercely. About 3,000 American troops have lost their lives in this war, with many thousands more wounded. And over 30,000 Iraqi civilians have been killed so far. And bear in mind, I'm not passing judgment on the rightness or wrongness of this war. I'm simply describing what is happening in the world. Less than a month ago, there was another fierce war in Lebanon. And there are widespread rumors of more and more wars to come. The buzzword for most of these wars is terrorism. And world leaders tell us that this war is not likely to end real soon. Some say that this is a clash of civilizations, the East against the West, Islam against Christianity. Last week, the Pope added fuel to the flames by some of the remarks he made about one of those civilizations. My question is, what is the basic cause of this conflict that takes so many lives and makes so many people fearful and unhappy? Even us here, we here in the United States. Is it a lack of power that causes it? There's a lot of power in the world. Is it lack of resources? There's enormous wealth at our command. Is it lack of intelligence? Not really. It is due to a profound distrust of one another's motives, intentions, and character. That's the foundation of conflicts. If we all trusted one another, and if we all were trustworthy and kept faith with one another, there will be no conflict. The lack of faith in one another, the profound doubts and deep distrust among huge sections of humankind, can only breed conflicts and violence, and so many, and so many of us sometimes so casually allow ourselves to be swept along in this lack of trust, that violence begins to spiral out of control, and assume a life of its own. Did you notice how glaring it was at the United Nations Assembly this week? Did you notice? Some of you who had time. I took some time. Now that I'm retired, I have a little flexible time and I can look at some of these things. In our colleges and universities, even some Christian ones, the seeds of doubt and unbelief are being constantly sown, instilling skepticism about the very existence of God or denial of him as the source of life and the arbiter of humankind's destiny on this planet. So it's a fight of faith. But this is just the visible manifestation of a larger crisis of trust, which began in the very presence of God back in eternity. Lucifer, the light bearer, began to nurture doubts about God's trustworthiness and to question his goodness, and he abandoned faith in him. Then he began to indulge in self idolatry as a substitute for the worship of the Creator. I will be like this. I will be like the Most High. Self-idolatry. And he would like to seduce all humanity to join him in one grand culture of doubt, skepticism, distrust, faithlessness. He wants our children. As I said, there are powerful forces at work in our planet. Some seen, some unseen, that are determined to obliterate faith from the earth. Faith in God and trust in our fellow men and fellow women. Unfortunately, it appears that they will achieve a great deal of success. I'm sad to say. I'm sorry to say. It appears that they will achieve a great deal of success. Notice how Jesus in describing conditions just before he returns, asked the question in Luke 18.8. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's a rhetorical question, but you know what the answer is. The obvious answer to that question is yes, but little. He is saying yes, there will be faith, but there will be little multitudes would scoff at the idea of faith in God, saying, where now is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning, Second Peter 3, 4. That's why believers are referred to as the little flock. Fear not, little flock. And so you might ask the question, are we then fighting a losing battle? The fight of faith. By no means. Read Hebrews 11 when you have time. And see for yourself. The great cloud of witnesses throughout history. That surround us. People of faith. Read it again and again and again. And read the history of the world. Since then. Records of towering personalities of faith. Who stood up against skepticism and doubt. And worship the one true God. We are fighting the fight of faith, but we are not fighting a losing battle. The world, the flesh, and the devil, over these counterfeits and imposters that are substituted for God, the people of God are sure that they have a victory. And according to 1 John 5 4. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. What? Even our faith. Our faith. Not our human resources. Not our power. Not our wealth. Not even our intelligence, although I believe faith involves intelligence. Certain measure of intelligence. It is our faith that overcomes the world. If we do not have it, then we will be At the mercy of the world and all the counterfeits and delusions that are there. The flesh which is constantly impelling and propelling and degrading us. And the devil who is like a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. we will be at the mercy of those powerful forces unless we are equipped with the shield of faith. Faith is not a cheap commodity then. You do not find it in 99 cent stores. It is costly, so costly that no one can ever buy it. It is received as a gift and must be treasured and protected if it is to be retained. It is true God has given us to everyone a measure of faith, the capacity for belief and trust. But if we are to retain it, we must treasure it, we must protect it in a hostile environment. Here's what the Apostle says about this. 1 Peter 1, 6-7. You may have to suffer various trials, the purpose of which is that your faith, which is more precious than refined gold, may prove genuine and result in glory and honor. He says faith is more precious precious than refined gold. You do not get it in 99 cent stores. If you have been blessed with the gift of faith, protect it, treasure it, nurture it, and invest it, and pass it on pure. Pass it on pure and fresh as a legacy to your children if they will receive it. For there is a massive plan to root out faith from the earth and turn this planet into a theater dominated by human pride, arrogance, self-idolatry, and self-worship. It is only the shield of faith then that can protect us from the nuclear fallout from the towers of Babel that human beings are building here and around the world. But what is this faith? Let me say a word as to what faith is is and what it is not. Because people are very confused on what this thing called faith really is. Is it a leap in the dark? (laughs) Thank you very much. Because this is widely believed that faith, some have defined it as a leap in the dark. That is, you are really no better off than a drowning man buffeted in troubled waters, grasping at a straw. Or as a man fainting from from thirst, stumbling to what seems to be a promising spring, only to have his fondest hopes shattered as he discovers that it is really just a mirage. Others have thought of faith as a blind man in a dark room Searching for a black cat that is not there. In other words, you are engaged in a very futile task. It's just a figment of your imagination. Nothing more. And you are doomed to be disappointed sooner or later. That's how some people think of faith. Some say that faith is believing what you know and so. Can you imagine forcing yourself to believe what you know and so? I know this thing doesn't exist, but I have to believe probably it has some kind of therapeutic value. Is that what faith is? Others have been presented with a picture of God that is simply not worthy of their trust. A God who exercises absolute power, demands absolute obedience and worship, but burns in eternal flames those who fail to reach his ideal. Or rebel against him. That's the picture that they have. A judgmental God. A fussy, picky God. I myself, at this point in my life, could not have faith in such a God. I could only be afraid of him. But that's the picture that the devil brings to many minds. Sometimes from the pulpit, I'm afraid. Someone you can only fear and never freely love and gladly trust. With these popular misconceptions, is it any wonder that there are so many thousands, yes, millions of atheists, agnostics, unbelievers, so many rebels against the very idea of God? Is it any wonder that multiplied millions believe only in the things that they can see and refuse to believe In anything that they cannot see, it is because of these false views of faith, false conceptions of God. Is this what the Bible calls faith? I submit no. Faith cannot be commanded, demanded, or forced. And I wish we had time to really explore the subject. This is just an introduction. This man, Nebuchadnezzar, he believed, he came to believe in a God He worshipped his strange gods and he built an image to represent the authority of this god and commanded everyone to your knees, on your knees. This is the man who had all power in his hands. On your knees, worship this god. A god who demands or ministers of his who demand We worship him. And as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned, that was a good conception of God. That was his conception of God, a God who demands worship on your knees. Three boys, three young men decided that that's not their picture of God. And they refused to be forced to worship what was really a false God. And he said, oh yes, and you know what he did. And he said, now I'm giving you another chance. On your knees, worship that God. And they refused. They said, we, we, we don't even need to discuss this with you anymore. We've decided that we are not worshipping that God. And you know what he did. And when he discovered that they were saved from his burning fiery furnace, he said, oh, there's a more powerful God than this one. Let's turn to that God. And you know what he did? He commanded everybody, he sent letters all over his kingdom, you bow down and worship that God, commanding them to worship, not his image anymore, but the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Forcing forced worship, faith cannot be compelled or commanded. If it was power and command that elicited faith, then think of a God who has all power in heaven and earth. All of us will be bowing down and worshipping him. And yet there's so much rebellion against him in the world. Faith cannot be commanded and demanded. Faith must be won. I cannot compel my children to trust me if I have not demonstrated trustworthiness. Faith is not a leap in the dark. Rather, I say, I submit, it's a movement toward the light. It is the flower turning naturally to where the sun is shining. Have you ever seen that? The bird spreading its wings and cleaving the air. The hungry infant reaching for its mother's breast. Naturally. Rational human beings creating the image and likeness of God seeking their father's face and their, their natural home. That's what faith is. It has been distorted, but that's what it is. As St. Thomas said so many years ago, oh God, we were made for you, and our restless hearts can find no rest until they rest in God. But although to everyone has been given this capacity to faith, as I say, a measure of faith, faith is also a choice. So then what is this biblical definition of faith? And you know the passage in Hebrews 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the simple King James Version. Another good news version renders it, to have faith is to be sure of the things we hope for, to be certain of the things we cannot see. How can you be sure of things that you hope for? How can you be so sure of things that you have never seen? Another version, faith is confident assurance concerning what we hope for and conviction about things that we cannot see. If that is indeed so, I must ask the question, where does one get such confidence? (laughs) Right. Thank you. That's very important. How does one come to this conviction and certainty about things one cannot see? We're in a scientific age. You've got to see, do experiments. Empirical data is important to establish the reliability of any finding. You gotta see it, you gotta do it again, again, and again and again. So, so that is the sixty-four dollar question. How does one come to this conviction and certainty about things we cannot see? And I submit that it is the strength of the evidence that persuades us and gives us this conviction. An honest examination of the evidence and discovery of their strength that gives us the conviction about things that we cannot see. Therefore, our task is to look for the evidence. (laughs) We're not going to get very far this morning. I could see that because I've only begun. I will have to end very soon. But let me just mention a few more things. In 1977, I was invited to go to Asia to work. Philippines. And I, when I boarded that plane, 747, I don't know how many of you have flown in that. Huge, big plane that can carry five, six hundred people in its belly. And I saw as they were putting all kinds of luggage and stuff in, inside there. Something in me tell me how could that thing ever fly? How could it ever get up there and stay up there for nearly twenty hours and land softly and gently? Something in me Question that. Nevertheless, I boarded that plane, taking my wife and my six-month-old daughter into that plane, heading for a country I had never seen, to live among a people I had never met. Tell me, was I being naive or foolish? What is it that made me do a thing like that? Faith. Faith. Was that faith firmly grounded? Was it a foolish faith? Was I trusting something? Well, 200 years ago, if you saw something like that, a piece of steel with all that weight flying, they said, "This this is impossible. This is a miracle. Now we say it's not a miracle. Because I had seen it happen many, many times. I had evidence. Even though I had never flown to the Philippines, I had evidence that the Philippines existed. I'd read up stuff, I'd talked to people, I'd written people, people I trusted I told me, I've been there, I saw it. The Philippines exist. I've seen people fly on the plane before so many times. And I said, you know, this looks risky, but I think the weight of evidence is on my side. I'm going to go. And you know, I went, and I, and I crossed the Pacific scores of times, to Indonesia, to Bangladesh, to Sri Lanka to Japan, to Korea, and I discovered that my faith in the pilot, in the mechanism, in the plane was well-founded. Only once I was scared that I was going to crash, but I didn't. The evidence was compelling that I had seen over many years, and that made me step out. The real genius of the Christian message, folks, is that God does not ask us to believe in him and trust him so completely without providing us with adequate evidence on which to rest our faith. He does not ask us to take a leap in the dark. Thank God. He does not ask us to become gullible, swayed by every wind that blows. He invites his intelligent to gird up the loins of their minds, to think for themselves and consider the evidence and make a choice. That's what he does. He has gone to great lengths over many thousands of years to introduce himself to humankind so that they can have the evidence. He has done this through his voice in nature. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day, utter speech. Night unto night, show it knowledge. The evidence is in nature. I have in my Bible here a, a song that was sung by Dr. Sally Magdano, a dentist in Manila, 1979, when I was speaking to a group of people in, Mount, in southern Philippines, and I loved the words, and she wrote it out for me. I still have it here. It's faded. That's over... God speaks in the stillness of the night. God speaks in the day so warm and bright. The flaming sunset paints the sky and sets the clouds ablaze. God speaks in all these wondrous ways. God speaks in the mountains and the plains he speaks. In the scent of autumn rains. In mighty rivers rushing in the haste to reach the sea. God speaks in you and me. Yes, nature testifies. That's important evidence, but that's not the whole of evidence. The greatest revelation of God the world has ever seen is in the way He revealed Himself in flesh. That is the great evidence, greatest evidence for faith. That God, who no one has seen, whose voice no one has heard, who no one has touched, became God. Visible, God, audible, God, tangible in Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And so you find the writer of the book of Hebrews saying, in many and various ways God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. He came to talk to us face to face, to touch us right where we are, to walk our dusty streets, right? To speak words that would uplift, words of forgiveness, to take the children in his arms and said, Suffer them to come to me. To rest his hands on the head of the sick and to cure them. To still the storm. When people were hungry, he said, give them something to eat. Even when others were saying, send them away. And you read the story of Jesus. And you see the evidence compelling. If this is God, then is he worthy of our trust? Can we have faith in him? One day, and I must close now. One day, after he had been with them for three years, and he said that he was going away, Jesus, well, one of his disciples, Philip, said, you know, what you're seeing is very wonderful, but what we want to see is the Father. Right? John The book of John, chapter 14 and verses 8 to 9. They said, show us the Father and we shall be satisfied. Just show us the Father. We see you, we like you. But you know what we want? We want to see (laughs) that one up there, that ancient of days, the judge that sits on the throne. What does he look like? Show us the Father and we shall be satisfied. And you know what Jesus says? Have I been so long with you, Philip, and yet you don't know me? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And therefore, if you can trust me, you can trust the Father. That's why Jesus is the light of the world. He is truly the light of the world. And so I say in him we have faith to believe in the existence of God. Study it. In him, we have faith to believe in the character of God, that God is worthy of our trust. We have faith to believe in the promises of God. Like Abraham, who didn't have all that we've got, but who staggered not at the promises of God. In Jesus Christ, we have faith to believe in the presence of God, that he is with us. That's his name, Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Not a distant God as the days say that God created, but he's gone on a vacation and he hasn't come back yet. But that he is with us in our trials, in our sorrows. We can say, sing the song, Lord, walk with me. In Jesus Christ, we have faith to believe in the power of God. His death and his glorious resurrection. He demonstrated that he mastered even death itself. So, I say to you, my brothers and sisters, that there is a crisis of trust. But we must fight the good fight of faith in this time of trust, in this time of distrust, in this crisis. There was a a young man named Paco who lived in Spain with his father, Paco. I like to tell this story because it tells us a lot in just a simple story. Paco had some disagreements with his father. As you know, sons and fathers sometimes have serious squabbles and disagreements. The people I see out here don't have those. You all look like saints, all you young men and women. Saints. Never had any struggles with your father. But Paco had struggles with his father. And the disagreement was so strong that Paco decided that he was going to leave home. And he packed up and left in a huff and went from the rural area where they were to live in Madrid. He was away and his parents didn't know where he was for a long, long time. But the father began to feel so bad about it and felt that he was partially responsible for his son choosing to run away from home. And he wanted him to come back. But he didn't know where to find him. He decided that he will put an ad in the major newspaper in Madrid, El Liberal. And he would put it there for several days. And the the notice, the ad he would put would read like this. Paco, in bold letters, Paco, come home. All is forgiven. If you want to come home, I'll come to Madrid on such and such a date. Meet me at the square. And he indicated where he wanted his son to meet him. So that if his son would read that, he would know exactly when and where to meet him. Well, the dad took the train and went into Madrid on the appointed day. And he went to the very spot. And he was flabbergasted when he got there. What do you think he saw? He saw 800 Pacos (laughs) waiting for their fathers. Paco is a very common name in Spain. 800 Pacos waiting for their fathers. Well, what that tell you? That tells you that we were made for God. Just as we were made for our earthly parents, we may rebel sometimes, but deep in our souls we want to be one with them. So it is with God. We are longing. We have substitutes and we rebel, but deep in our souls the longing is for oneness to be connected with our creator in whose image we were made. And he has given us evidence in his word, evidence in nature, and evidence in Jesus Christ. Let us come home by faith.